Susan Cottrell is the CEO of the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy, AMCP, a professional association leading the way to help patients get the medications they need at a cost they can't afford. AMCP's diverse membership of pharmacists, physicians, nurses, and professionals in life sciences and biopharmaceutical companies leverage their specialized expertise in clinical evidence and economics to optimize benefit of medicines, population health management, and patient access to cost-effective, safe medications. Susan, it's a pleasure to see you. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Now, many of our listeners are based in places outside of the United States. What exactly is a managed care pharmacy and how does this differ from other pharmacies you'd find around the world? The terminology is seemingly uh, uniquely American, but uh, the, the practice really is not. Managed care pharmacy is the practice of designing, implementing, and managing pharmacy benefits. So Mm -hmm. the way medications are paid for, as well as the way that they're used by patients. And unlike the traditional pharmacy, which is a facility um, that distributes medication, managed care pharmacy professionals work somewhat behind the scenes, using tools like formularies, uh, certain methods of utilization management, and other uh, tools and strategies to manage the way medications are used in populations as well as in individual patients. And all of this is working toward the goal of ensuring that patients get the right and most appropriate medications, but also at a cost they can afford. So there's a lot of discussion now about the generic sector and access to generics and biosimilars. Is this part of what you're working on now is the biosimilar position for replacement of some of the drugs that have gone off patent? So biosimilars, um, as you know, um, are an opportunity mm-hmm. to drive additional costs out of the healthcare um, system. And yes, absolutely, that is a major priority for us. We've been very actively supportive of the use of lesser expensive alternatives when they exist and uh, when patient outcomes can still be optimized, uh, but making rational decisions around the use of generic medications as well as biosimilars. Unfortunately, here in the U.S., even though we've had the pathway in place now for a few years, we've had biosimilars being approved for just over four years now. We haven't yet gotten to the point where we're really utilizing those medications in the best way in order to save our valuable healthcare resources. Well, why so, do you think that is? Well, I think there are so many reasons. We <laughs> <laughs> limited a few, probably, but the. There are a number of reasons. There are some barriers to um, getting these products on the market, and uh, most of those are related to to business reasons, uh, patent issues, and and the like. We don't focus our energy there because that's not uh, necessarily our um, space, if you will. Um, But what we're looking at is what can we do to lower the regulatory hurdles to utilization of biosimilars, as well as how can we best use them in everyday medicine and clinical decision making. So I think there's so many reasons. In the U.S., we now have 20 biosimilars that have been approved, but just a handful that are actually on the market and available to patients. Another issue that uh, is somewhat unique to the U.S. is that we have a concept called interchangeability, Mm -hmm. which is a regulatory designation for biosimilars that was written into the law um, when it was originally passed. It requires that FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, establish standards not only for biosimilarity um, that would lead to regulatory approval of products, but also for interchangeability. 
we just recently, within the last three months, received um, the final FDA guidance on what constitutes interchangeability. It's a bit of a heavy lift. Sure. And in a market right now where um, biosimilars um, aren't living up to their potential, then it's um, somewhat risky for companies to invest the amount of uh, dollars for R&D that it would take to actually get that designation of interchangeability. Because from what I understand, then you still need to do a clinical trial to verify that the drug has a biosimilar performance to the drug that was licensed. But now what you're saying is there's also an interchangeability where other drugs can come in and then compete and segment the market and slice the market more. So there's a question then of the economic viability of certain segments if you don't know you're going to have enough volume there to make it work. Yes, I think that's a real challenge. And um, with interchangeability in particular, there are switching studies that are required. Sure. And um, it's a major investment for a company to really attain that level of of that regulatory designation of interchangeability. On the other hand, it's very important because in the U.S., as we start to get into the biosimilar market where the drugs might be dispensed through pharmacy channels, regular retail or specialty pharmacies, then in order for pharmacists to substitute, Many states require that uh, the product have the designation of interchangeability. Some sort of good housekeeping seal that they know they can swap them out and the effect size is the same. That's right. Right. Along with your work you're doing now in the biosimilar space and and other things that have been happening here in the U.S., one of the things that you're at the forefront of is harnessing real-world evidence to get a better understanding of value for a lot of your products. How is the current system for determining value lacking and why have you been working so much in this space harnessing real world evidence? Some of our members in AMCP are actually leading the way in the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionally, uh, the way we've paid for medicines is based on volume sure. and volume discounts uh, demonstrating the ability to move market share. What we haven't done traditionally here is really based negotiating prices on a demonstration of value or an achievement of a promised outcome, sure. if you will, or an expected outcome. Um, So the issue of paying for value in pharmaceuticals is still relatively new. We tried it back in the 90s. It didn't work so well. Uh, We didn't necessarily have the infrastructure, the large data sets, and and other capabilities that we needed in order to make it work. But in the last several years, that momentum has changed as we now have all those tools available to us. And more and more health plans, uh, payers, health systems, and others are entering into value-based agreements with pharmaceuticals. Now, you mentioned the topic of determining value. Now, that is highly controversial here, (laughs) and um, we don't have a good answer for that, but I think um, one thing that we've been pleased about is seldom do we have a discussion about the cost of a medication or a therapy where the word value is not used. Right. So we're starting to reframe our thinking from how much does it cost and how much will we pay to what is the value that this brings to the individual health system, to the individual patient, to the payer, to the health system overall. And as we thankfully have more and more innovative products coming to market that really are game changers in terms of treating and preventing disease, then these come at a high price tag. So I think it's imperative that we figure this out because we can't be paying, our system can't support payment for multi-million dollar therapies that aren't working in patients. Yeah, and obviously I think Savaldi, and we've talked a lot in our firm about Savaldi, I think you and I have talked about Savaldi a lot off, off channel. 
Savaldi was sort of a shot across the bow of sort of a reality dart to a lot of people because I think people thought the price was eye-popping. But then when you looked at the whole value chain about what happens when you were giving you know, pegylated interferon instead of Savaldi, you were looking at costs of 200 250,000 per patient. So the 80,000 was a bargain. But the problem was that other cost was coming out of the hospital budget against, you know, cutting out a lot of the liver transplants. That's a political problem. How are you guys dealing with those aspects, which obviously will impact your stakeholders? That is a significant challenge. And the way that we pay for healthcare in the U.S. kind of adds uh, to that dilemma. But it's, it's universal, but obviously it's, you know, a beggar thy neighbor probably because the person who's paying here doesn't have to worry about what's going on downstream. But eventually you're going to have to. Absolutely. And uh, we've been doing some work in that area. Uh, there are a number of payers that now are out in front in terms of looking at uh, total cost of care. Sure. As opposed to what is paid for on the medical side and what is paid for on the pharmacy side and and never the two connect. Uh, I think there have been a lot of positive strides made in that area. Just last year, we hosted a forum, a two-day forum, that uh, resulted in a roadmap, basically, for pharmacy and medical uh, data integration to do exactly that, uh, look at total cost of care as part of these value-based uh, payment arrangements. So we're making progress in that area. We're not there yet. Um, some of the vertical integration that we're seeing in the, in the U.S. Uh, among um, major players in healthcare delivery and payment, I think will help us move in the right direction or they're intended to do that. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Um, but that that is a real challenge. Is the data there now? I mean, do we have enough depth of data to make this happen? In I think um, it depends on who we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And certain, there are some uh, areas of uh, where it does exist. And uh, there um, is the capability to do this, um, to look across the various um uh, healthcare delivery channels and see what the patient's total cost of care. It's certainly not universal, though. We mm-hmm. have a long way to go. One of the other things you were working on quite extensively, uh, which I found very interesting, was this uh, promotion of the safe harbor approach to sharing non-medical data in advance. I think, obviously, what we're looking at are ways to accelerate the path to market be- to try and cut costs and improve outcomes. One of the things that was happening with the FDA was the idea that you could use the safe harbor to take non-medical information before the approval to start having discussions with the insurers to try and accelerate the approval process and also maybe use data that's not normally used, sort of non-scientific, non-RCT data to get a decision. What would be the utility of sharing that data earlier before the label, in your opinion? What do you think you get out of that? So that's been a flagship issue that sure. we've been working on uh, for three years now. And um, it came about as a result of feedback that we were receiving from our members. We brought a group of multiple stakeholders together, including uh, pharma and biotech manufacturers, researchers, clinicians, as well as managed care for professionals, to talk about this issue of information needs. What do we need? Initially, it was uh, specifically in the area of healthcare economic information. What do payers need from manufacturers, and how can that best be delivered? What came out of that was a, a secondary but equally important need, and that is payers need information well in advance of a product's approval. And they need it for a multitude of purposes. Um, one, obviously, is um, budgeting, planning, uh, cost reporting, all, all of those important business-related issues. 
but more important is um, for patient access. Sure. So if we look at what's happening in the U.S. now where we have um, more and more therapies being approved through expedited approval pathways, including the breakthrough therapy designation, then the products are coming to market more quickly. And sometimes even a- after phase two uh, clinical trials and there's a lack of data, well, pairs analyze this data and uh, look at the evidence to determine what coverage will be for a particular product and a particular indication in a particular segment of their patient population. If those data are not available when the product is approved, then there's a lag time potentially between the time the product is available and the time patients can get reimbursement. Yeah, and I think part of the problem as well is if the data is not available, what you're seeing is a lot of extrapolation then coming out sort of, oh, well, we think this will happen in 18 months which is getting a huge amount of pushback from the payers, particularly in Europe. We're seeing the payers in Europe saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know? So you think that the safe harbor approach that you had with your PI legislation, what was that called? It was the pharmaceutical, what was it again? Yeah, it is it is PI. We call it yeah. PI because... Every- Not P-I, but P-I-E. P-I-E, because <laughs> everybody likes PI. Everyone loves PI. And uh, it stands for Pharmaceutical Information Exchange. And it was a bill introduced into our legislature in 2017. Mm-hmm. It made it part of the way through, helped subcommittee markup on the House side, unfortunately did not get voted on um, in the 115th Congress, the previous session. Um, so we're hoping to have it reintroduced this year. Now, I will say that we've been very happy with the action that the Food and Drug Administration has taken on this issue to date. In uh, final guidance that they released uh, in June of 2018, they had a, had language in that, that kind of reflected what our stakeholders had told us and that we had published on this issue. However, that is regulatory guidance. Right. Non-binding can be changed. And what we're hearing from the manufacturers, even in the wake of, of that, is that there's still ambiguity and there's still an element of risk there. So yeah, ambiguity means liability. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, we we uh, need further clarity on it. Sure. And and we believe that that further clarity uh, first needs to start with some legislative action. And we have language that uh, uh, would do just that. And then from that, the regulatory piece could be added to it. And there would be clarity um, about uh, uh, for the manufacturers on exactly what is allowable. There's been a lot of turnover in the Trump administration. And obviously, Commissioner Gottlieb was a real visionary, obviously pushing Safe Harbor, a lot of the things with real-world evidence, et cetera. Do you see any change in the rhetoric coming out of FDA now with uh, Gottlieb's departure, or do you still see full steam ahead, all status quo? Well, it seems like, um, from what we've seen so far, that uh, acting Commissioner Sharpless has a, a similar mindset on a number of these important issues to Commissioner Gottlieb's. And um, I um, saw a... Um, presentation by Gottlieb about a week before he left. It was kind of his final parting thoughts on his uh, tenure and what happens next with FDA. And he spoke uh, very highly of the acting commissioner and what he would bring to the table and really indicated there's a lot of mutual interest among the two. So we haven't seen anything so far to tell us different. Good. Um, (laughs) But again, um, you know, the uh, guidance that uh, I referenced came out before Commissioner Gottlieb had departed. So 
Uh, so we'll see. One of the other things that AMCP has been very active with is the Partnership Forum on Oncology. Why do you see oncology as such a key focus to your membership? Um, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons I could go into, but from your perspective, why do you see this as a key plank of uh, your work? Well, if we look at how much we're spending on oncology medications in the U.S. and, and globally as well, uh, it's going up, up, up. Now, with that, obviously, is the um, uh, the benefit that we have of the wonderful innovation, the CAR-T therapy and the like uh, coming out. So it's a very exciting time. But at the same time, we have to look at how we're managing the therapies and how we're using our healthcare resources. So oncology being a distinct area where expenditures in the area of medications uh, are very high, um, it's something that we need to look at. The concept of value in oncology becomes even less clear than it is in other therapeutic areas because, as you well know, often in oncology you're looking at an extension of disease-free survival or other uh, endpoints that uh, aren't necessarily curative or um, game-changing for patients. So I think when we look at that, it's um, how do we manage oncology expenditures? How do we look at value in oncology that might be different and completely unique to that disease state as compared to others? Now, picking up on that, the Trump administration to try and keep control of costs of these often injectable products in the Medicare portfolio, Medicare Part B exclusively, they're trying to roll out an international reference price where they're going to average U.S. pricing from you know Italy and Greece and Slovakia to U.S. pricing. Do you at AMCP have an opinion on this legislation and where it's going? Obviously, full disclosure, we've done a lot of work at VT and we have very strong opinions on this, but I'm just curious from your opinion at AMCP, what do you reckon about this? Well, I want to first say, Duane, that we saw your work that you've done on this and congratulations Thank for it. <laughs> a very nice body of work uh, in really looking at the issues uh, from a, an economic modeling perspective and figuring out what could be the implication. I think when I first saw the, the information that you had put forward, you know, what we say uh, here is that you have to balance the ability to innovate but also the control of cost. And um, you can't necessarily control cost at uh, the detriment of innovation or uh, where will we be. So, you know, I think that is first and foremost, we have to consider uh, the impact something like IPI could have on the ability to continue this level of innovation that we're seeing because so much happens here in the U.S., I think there are a number of concerns that we have about the concept of IPI as well as the way it's been proposed, the countries that would be included and so many other things. But when it all comes down to it, our organization is very supportive of a competitive marketplace where you're able to apply these principles of managed care pharmacy to better utilize the products that are available and manage overall healthcare costs. So um, government intervention and price setting <laughs> is not something that uh, we um, traditionally have been very supportive of because we've seen examples of where it very much distorts the marketplace. If you go back to the press conference and the meeting that Trump had, one of the first meetings he had when he was elected in January of 2017, when he brought all the pharmaceutical CEOs together, there was a discussion of, okay, we need to get pricing down to Medicare, but you know, 11 years is crazy. We need to get the time to market accelerated. I see Commissioner Gottlieb all over that proposal. I, I see so much of his influence there. It seems like we've lost 
the time to market discussion and all, you know the sort of carrot of time to market to reduce costs and all we got now is the stick of pricing what do you think some of the work you've done with real world evidence could do to try and square that circle that we have now with a lack of evidence in the phase two releases early and breakthrough how can we actually make that more viable so we get the evidence earlier and we can go from 11 years to five years and cut that working capital in half so that that's where we need to be the holy right? grail <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, we need to speed up the innovation and of course that's not a new concept we've been talking about it for many years um FDA, I would say, to its credit, and some of the other regulatory agencies uh, around the world uh, have taken some steps, like FDA's guidance on use of real-world evidence and regulatory approval. And um, so they've taken some steps to kind of move in that direction. There's much left to do. um, But squeezing that time and lowering the cost associated with drug development Uh, no doubt should be a major priority. You're right. It seems that those discussions have fallen by the wayside to a certain extent of late in the public dialogue. I like to think that we're still thinking along those lines, um, but um, what the utilization of real-world evidence can give to us in a way that uh, we haven't seen it before, I think uh, can be very powerful. So I'm hoping that we'll keep that part of the discussion uh, uh, moving forward. You mentioned the CAR-T is sort of a a classic case of an effective therapy that's come to market. But if you look at the populations for those CAR-T, particularly in the acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the ALLs, where we have most of the products right now, the Ascarda and the Kimria, I mean, you're looking at populations of seven, eight hundred a year only. So you're dividing that billion, two billion dollars over a very, very small population. I mean, the orphanization of treatment is a reality. And of course, if your costs don't go down and your population is much smaller, you know, costs are going to be high. I mean, do you see the a part of the problem is just the way science is leading us to more and more targeted therapies and more and more responsive indications in the orphan class and that this is just a scientific inevitability that we're going to have to deal with these smaller and smaller end populations? So I don't know that I want to characterize that as a problem, but, but at the same time, it is a contributor to the dilemma that we face and that dilemma being how do we afford health care? So if we look at U.S. expenditures, you, you know, we're rapidly approaching 20%, 20% GDP. of yeah. our GDP being spent on health care. Yeah, but pharma is only t- 11% of that, you know, of that total number. So pharma, and that's been fairly consistent. So in that sense, the offsetting with generics has done a good job at keeping prices rather stagnant. There's some increase, but so it's not necessarily the pharma cost, although it's eye-popping the way it's paid for. But unfortunately, a lot of that falls on the individual. How do you think we can get around this then? I think this will continue to be a challenge. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, as we look at rare and orphan diseases and look at the FDA drug, drug approvals in uh, 2018, uh, 40% yeah. uh, were in the rare disease space. So um, that, that's a big number. I can recall um, having a conversation with an FDA official six or seven years ago where he laughed and said, eventually we'll get to the point where hypertension is a rare disease because (laughs) you'll be able to categorize it in such specific ways and target the treatment. So that's a problem in that uh, it's expensive, but also that's a great benefit perhaps in the way we treat disease. It does present a conundrum, though, and it's not likely to um, end anytime soon. We just had, in the last couple of months, the 
new uh, therapy approved for um, spinal muscular, muscular atrophy. atrophy. Yeah, the Novartis drug, yes. And, you know, talk about a game changer for a condition that certainly is one. Now, uh, you could argue that you'll have um, offsetting cost uh, if you're able to, to give these patients better quality of life. And there's an argument to be made for that. But, you know, we're on the precipice of having gene therapy for hemophilia and so many other conditions. We have to figure out a way to pay for it. Right. And at the heart, uh, that's what our organization is all about. Again, back to trying to make sure patients have the medications they need at a cost they can afford. If you had the ability right now to go over to the Hill, which you do regularly, I know, but if you came over there tomorrow, this week, and were given carte blanche to go over to the health committees on both the Senate and the House side to get a piece of legislation through, what would you like that one thing to be between now and the next Congress? What do you think is the quick game, the quick win that you could deliver right now? I don't know that I can give you one. How about I give you three? We'll, get, we'll take three, Susan. Okay. That's fine. You can have three. Our organization has done a lot of work in this area, and it started a few years ago as the Trump administration was coming on board. The first Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, um, invited in a number of organizations to have discussions about what we could do about the rising cost of pharmaceuticals. And of course, we've continued to be very involved with uh, the conversations both on the Hill as well as with HHS on this issue. But our board took the very deliberate step of really condensing some of our major policy areas into a three-part platform on what solutions that we think uh, could be real solutions to the rising cost of pharmaceuticals. So the three-part platform is uh, first and foremost looking at continuing the ability to use certain utilization management strategies, formulary systems, and other tools and strategies that uh, have been in place for a number of years and have been effective at controlling uh, cost, ensuring that you're using lesser uh, costly alternatives when they're available, optimizing medication use, ensuring the right patients get the right medication. So that's one, okay. manage, what we'll call managed care tools and strategies. More of what you're doing, but more of it. Exactly. Turning it to 11, as it were. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, HHS has adopted some of those ideas. For example, um, they clarified a little over a year ago about uh, using step therapy in uh, Medicare Advantage and Part B medications. So, you know, that's a step in the right direction. The second part of that is uh, the value equation. Sure. And that is uh, the shift of paying uh, for value as opposed to paying for volume that we've traditionally done and enabling that to take place. There are a number of barriers to paying for volume on the pharmaceutical side. So we're really in favor of breaking down some of those legal and regulatory barriers to allow more of that to happen and using real-world evidence to really assess the value that a product brings to the patient, to the population, and to the health system. And then the third area is having a competitive marketplace. And part of that competitive marketplace includes a competitive biologics marketplace in the U.S., which we don't really have right now. Having a robust uh, biosimilars pipeline as well as uh, regulatory policies that um, encourage utilization and approval of biosimilars. And then when it comes to utilization, really taking a rational approach to where 
those products can be used in place of innovator products in order to save healthcare resources. And I just want to mention that while that's our three-part platform to the latter item that I mentioned in the area of biosimilars, uh, so we don't just talk about it, we like to take action here at AMCP. And in 2015, made a commitment to create something called the Biologics and Biosimilars Collective Intelligence Consortium. And that is a consortium that includes about 18 organizations that is set up to look at real-world evidence in the use of biologics and biosimilars. And I'm delighted to say that uh, we just had our first publication published in Drug Safety and Epidemiology, and it's on the topic of methodologies for switching studies. But we have about another seven additional manuscripts in various stages of peer review. But we're using basically the infrastructure that was established as part of the FDA Sentinel Mm -hmm. program. Um, to look at safety and effectiveness of biologics and biosimilars in various disease states. So we're trying to trying to really facilitate the availability of evidence to make those important decisions. That's great, Susan. Susan, thank you very much for your time. It was lovely speaking with you. Likewise. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.